When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Dance Champa by Cleveland's own Latin music master, Victor Samalot. Victor is our featured Ohio musical artist tonight, so hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you all about him and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Acker Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. In Ashtabula County, along Ohio's border with Pennsylvania, is Pima Tuning Lake, an epic fisherman's paradise. While most of it is in Pennsylvania, the 16,000 acres of it that are in Ohio make it our state's largest inland lake. And it's man-made, constructed in 1933 in a deal between the two states and with Congress's blessing. They dammed a swamp that existed there already and created this huge conservation area that has been attracting anglers, boaters, campers, and outdoor lovers for generations. It helps that it's also just an hour from Cleveland and Akron and even less from Youngstown and Pittsburgh. One of the biggest benefactors of this high-quality attraction was the small village of Andover, about a mile west of the lake. Most folks going to the Ohio side of Pimatuming will go straight through the heart of Andover. Today, the small village has a population of about 1,100 people. It was about the same size when our story takes place in 1955. It was August the 10th of that year, a Wednesday, when local stores, restaurants, and other businesses catered to lots of -of out-of-towners in addition to the locals. It was a hot summer evening, thermostats inching toward 90 degrees when a storm hit. Hard rain, the drum of thunder, bursts of lightning. As the rain filled some streets to the top of the curb, People on the village square took shelter wherever they could find it. One place of refuge was the combined Isley's Dairy Bar and Gateway Restaurant, a name that took pride in Andover's role as the gateway to Pima Tuning. 
The businesses shared a two-story wood frame building that sat on Main Street at the northeast corner of the square. They were divided by a partition with patrons passing easily between them through an arched doorway. Inside, it was busy. Diners who were in no hurry to dodge the rain lingered over their meals, and those who were done had to make a decision, hang out inside the door and wait for a break in the weather, or make a dash to their cars. As it turned out, this would be a life-or-death decision. Just after 7 p.m., the building exploded in a deafening roar. Walls blew out. The roof caved in on the second floor. Then the second floor pancaked onto the first floor, sending the ceiling onto the heads of patrons. That wasn't even the worst of it. What started as a small blaze at the back of the building flared into an inferno and flames swept over everything. The blast also showered the square with debris. Automobiles outside were riddled with flying wreckage. Among the injured were people who had simply been sitting in their cars riding out the storm. At the moment of the explosion, the Andover Volunteer Fire Department was five miles away. A lightning strike had sent them to Don Dillon's barn, which had caught on fire in Wayne Township, and that diverted them about eight miles to the south of the square. They were on their way back when they saw black smoke in the sky. One of the firemen asked a colleague, Is that a hurricane? The colleague replied, That's no hurricane. That's trouble. While they were waiting for the fire department, civilians attempted to help anyone they could reach. Witnesses later said they could see limbs sticking out of the debris, but they were limited to aiding those who had been blown free of the building because the fire was so hot Nobody could get into those ruins for more than two hours. The Andover firefighters hurried to the site where they were joined by other groups, state highway patrolmen, auxiliary policemen, civil defense people, and fire companies from 16 communities. In addition to putting out the fire at the restaurant, they aimed their hoses at other buildings trying to stop the spread. But a couple of more buildings would be lost, and others severely damaged. Once the fire was extinguished, recovery teams formed a line, 20 abreast, and started the task of shoveling through the ashes, charred timber, and twisted steel. The rain didn't stop. Crews worked through the drizzle all night, emergency generators powering searchlights that illuminated the wreckage. They pulled out bodies, and body parts that had been reduced to unrecognizable cinders. At five in the morning, they finally took a break. Then, as a gray dawn rose, they went back to their gruesome job. Joining the town that night were 60 men from the Youngstown Air Force Base. The mayor had become nervous, seeing area streets quickly fill with cars as word traveled and people came wanting to see the site of the disaster. He declared martial law, and the Air Force personnel were in place by midnight just in case they were needed. They were not, and they were withdrawn at daybreak. The blast, meanwhile, had knocked out local power and telephone service. The only means of communication out of town 
was the operator at the New York Central Railroad Depot. It would take days to finalize these numbers, but at the time of the blast, there were 36 people inside the store and restaurant. 22 were killed. Another 17 in and out of the store were injured and treated at hospitals in Ashtabula and Conneaut. The harrowing accounts of survivors were preserved in newspaper reports around the state. One survivor was Nancy Mock. The 23-year-old Youngstown woman owned the Gateway Restaurant with Luke Flannery and Myron French. Flannery had left for home minutes before the blast. French was inside, then tossed out into the street at the explosion. He sustained serious injuries. It seemed a miracle that Mock had escaped death herself. She had gone to the basement of the building, where nearly a foot of water had accumulated. One moment she was working to clean up the flooding. The next second she was waking up, lying on her back and surrounded by broken glass, noise, fire, and smoke. Incredibly, she was reachable. Mr. and Mrs. Richard Kirker had been on their way across the Pimatuning Lake Causeway. That was about a mile away when they heard the explosion, raced back to help, and then found and managed to pull Nancy Mock to safety. But Mock clearly was haunted by the last images she had inside the restaurant. She remembered two tables that held families of six. She told a reporter, one had three little children and one had four. One family had finished, and they were standing inside the door, waiting for the rain to stop. I don't know if they made it out. A volunteer fireman, Harold Roach, told of a man who had parked his car across the street while his wife and child went in for ice cream. After the explosion, he made a mad scramble to the building to save his family, and it took several men to stop him from racing headlong into the fire. Jacob Verderber, a 22-year-old man from Cleveland, was in a drugstore across the street when the boom caused him to turn his head and he watched the building fall apart. He reached three victims, pulling them from the debris, but listened to screams from the people still trapped inside. He said, those who were blown out of the building were more fortunate. At least they had a chance. Those trapped inside didn't have a chance. It was ghastly. Outside, Corrine Cutlip had just arrived to pick up her 16-year-old twin daughters, Arlene and Darlene. The girls were cheerleaders at Williamsfield High School and had taken jobs waitressing at the restaurant to earn money for school clothes. It was the end of their shift, and Mrs. Cutlip parked on the square, her four-year-old daughter Kathy in the passenger seat, waiting for her sisters to come out. Then the explosion. Mrs. Cutlip swooped Kathy into her arms and raced across the square, making an instinctive but mindless attempt to climb into the wreckage. She was stopped by a man who kept her from plunging into the flames. Her daughters, who had come into the world together, had left it together. A day after the explosion, reporters found Frank Lackey, a 32-year-old truck driver, wandering around the scene asking, Where's Cecil? 
Where's my buddy? Lackey had spent the night in the hospital and upon his release went straight back to the ruins of the restaurant in search of Cecil Poindexter. Frank and Cecil had grown up together in Massillon, where they had been schoolmates, then served in the Civilian Conservation Corp together, then became co-workers at the Michigan Silo Company. They were working on a job, erecting silos just west of the village, and had gone into town for dinner. They were seated at the horseshoe-shaped food counter and had just ordered dinner. Frank had asked for the pork chops. The waitress returned and placed cups of coffee on the counter in front of them. Frank took the spoon in his hand, and in the very next instant, he was lying on the grass in the village square, one shoe on, one shoe off. A woman was dipping a rag into a muddy pool of water and trying to wipe blood and dirt from his face. A day after sharing his story with reporters, Lackey found out where his buddy Cecil was. His remains were found in the rubble of the basement. There was no explanation for why the blast treated them so differently, throwing one to safety in the street, taking the other down to his death. Charles and Dolores Dada were two more of the lucky ones. They had just finished eating at the diner. Thirty-year-old Charles had walked across the street and was waiting for his wife to join him. Twenty-eight-year-old Dolores was hovering inside the restaurant, waiting for a break in the rain. Then, suddenly, Dolores was sitting in the middle of Main Street. I saw her, Charles Dada told a reporter. She was sitting there just sitting there right in the middle of Main Street. He collected his wife and drove her to a doctor's office to tend to her minor injuries. The Thompson family barely escaped the path of the fire. The flames jumped buildings and reached the apartment where they lived above the Ohio Edison offices. Mrs. Thompson had to hand her three children to rescue workers on an adjacent roof. As she passed the last child to safety, She heard her kitchen appliances falling through the apartment floor. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Now the investigation into the explosion began immediately. The morning light brought in experts who came to try and figure out just what had happened. They poked through the rubble, looking for a cause. One survivor, Ed Sermon, a 39-year-old hardware store owner from Solon, was in the restaurant with his 9-year-old son, Edward, and his 29-year-old cousin, James Sermon, of Cleveland. Ed told his companions he smelled gas. He said barely had the words left his mouth than the building had exploded. 
He and his cousin were blown from it and pinned under a fallen wall from which they were rescued. But there was no sign of little Edward. Others had smelled gas. The Reverend Louis Bregitzer and his wife left the Gateway restaurant shortly before the blast because they were bothered by the awful smell. They had finished dinner and were standing inside waiting for the rain to let up when the wife said the odd odor was making her sick. So they dodged the raindrops to get to their car and drove off. They didn't even hear about the blast until much later. Fire Chief Scott Getman initially guessed the explosion may have been caused by the buildup of sewer gas, which may have accumulated due to clogged drains. Maybe a spark from electrical equipment in the basement set it off. But once they could get inside, state fire marshals couldn't find any pockets of sewer gas. Another theory was that it may have been natural gas, maybe leaking from a gas main and touched off by a stray lightning bolt. But again, investigators couldn't find a faulty pipe. Still others began to wonder if something volatile had leaked into the town's old unmapped sewers. Maybe years of seepage from a nearby gas station that had been carried into the drains by the rainwater. While investigators considered the options, sewer gas, natural gas, or gasoline, others were focused on a different kind of mystery, identifying the dead. The charred corpses were taken a few blocks away, where they lined the garage floor of the makeshift morgue behind the town's only mortuary, Baumgartner's funeral home. People tried to match limbs with dismembered torsos. Seven bodies that had been burned together in a heap near the restaurant's counter had to be carefully separated. It was a challenge to determine anything more than whether the remains were male or female, adult or child. Because many of the victims were transients, officials had to wait for relatives to learn that they were missing a loved one. Then the loved ones would arrive in Andover, anxious, clustering outside the ruins, and waiting for word. Authorities tried to spare them from seeing the blackened bodies, one boy was identified just through the Boy Scout belt buckle that he wore. In other cases, deputies would take keys found on the remains and try to fit them in cars parked around the square. Then they could match the individuals or families to the car's registration. Still, in many cases, a family member was needed to pull the blanket covering back and look at the remains in hopes of figuring it out. In the case of Arlene and Darling Cutlip, their father recognized them by their shoes. After two days, a report that a Pennsylvania woman, Elizabeth Kirkhan, was unaccounted for, sent volunteers back into the ruins looking for her. She, her husband Russell, and their children, 13-year-old John and 8-year-old Margie, had come to town on a fishing trip. A family member had already identified the husband and the kids. When Elizabeth's remains were finally found, she was the 21st victim. The 22nd and final victim was Ruby Shelato of Richmond, 
a 17-year-old waitress a couple of weeks away from starting her senior year at Andover High School. She lasted a couple of days at Ashtabula General before dying of her injuries. The last three bodies to be identified were boys. John Cochis of Cleveland viewed the remains of one of the small charred bodies and agreed it could be his 10-year-old son Donald, though there was no clothing or hair or other easy means of being sure. Only the day before, he had watched his son playing baseball, and they celebrated how he'd hit a single, a double, and a grand slam home run during the game. The next day, young Donald went on a fishing trip with his neighbors, Frank and Barbara Fellows, and their young son, Richard. Apparently, they had stopped in at Gateway Restaurant for a bite. None of them made it home. In the weeks that followed, the village of Andover tried to recover. The next month, they even decided to go forward with their street fair. It had been held on the town square for 35 years in a row each September. People questioned the idea, since the patch of rubble at the corner still looked the way it did when it all came tumbling down. How could they judge cakes and dance to band music in sight of that, they asked. But the fair was a fundraiser for the town, and in the end, it brought in $2,800, a record amount, to put toward the fire department's purchase of a new high-pressure pumper. Damaged businesses were eventually rebuilt. Even Isley's built a new store on the site of the old. But the one thing that had no resolution was the cause of the fire. The victims filed lawsuits, which were mostly based on an educated guess. The village sewers had become contaminated with flammable substances from a filling station's storage tanks. The lawsuits named Ohio and Pennsylvania Oil and Gas Company, Standard Oil Company of Ohio, and the village of Andover for being negligent in allowing it. The first case went to trial in 1960. That was five years after the incident, with the plaintiff James Sermon of Cleveland, who was injured in the blast. The trial lasted three and a half months. At the time, it was the longest trial in Cuyahoga County Common Pleas history. But after all those weeks, the case didn't even get to jury. The defense made an appeal that in all the testimony, no evidence had been presented that gasoline from service stations had gotten into Isley's. And Judge Earl Hoover agreed. He outright dismissed the case and sent the jury home. Eighteen other lawsuits lingered. In 1963, in a surprise ending to the legal saga, the companies settled for an undisclosed amount just to end the courtroom wrangling. But the companies were never officially blamed for the blast, and a file in the state fire marshal's office, a foot thick, never fixed a cause. Now here's the full list of those who died. Russell and Elizabeth Kirkhan and their children, John and Margie, from Ingram, Pennsylvania. Frank and Barbara Fellows and their son, Richard, from Cleveland, and the neighborhood boy, Donald Cochis. Three generations of the Cannell family, 
45-year-old Thomas Cannell of Pittsburgh, his daughter Shirley Schroeder, her husband George Schroeder, and their two-year-old son George Jr. 40-year-old Evelyn Labus of North Ridgeville, nine-year-old Ed Sermon Jr. of Solon, and truck driver Cecil Poindexter of Massillon. There were also seven employees of the restaurant, 16-year-old Forrest Beisterveld of Williamsfield, 18-year-old Barbara Offit of Jefferson, 32-year-old Tom Brown and 34-year-old Helen Jones, both of Andover, 17-year-old Ruby Shelato of Richmond, and 16-year-old twins Arlene and Darlene Cutlip. We owe a big thank you for this episode to Julie, an Ohio Mysteries listener who not only let us know about this incident, but collected a ton of clippings from newspapers all over Ohio. Most of our research comes from those clippings. So thanks, Julie. We were glad to make sure these victims were not forgotten. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. We've featured Victor Samalot on our show several times because we are in love with his unique Latin instrumentals, which are flavored with jazz and rock. I've always thought of him as Cleveland's version of Carlos Santana, which is appropriate because Victor will tell you himself, Santana is among his biggest inspirations. And fortunately for his fans, Victor is a prolific performer. In the month of September, you can catch him on the 11th for a 10.30 a.m. morning performance at the Old Brooklyn Farmer's Market in Cleveland, then to Cuyahoga Falls on the 12th at noon at Market District Portage Crossing. On the 17th, he'll be playing at 11.30 a.m. at Cleveland's Downtown Public Square, and on the 18th, an evening performance in North Royalton at Crooked River Wine at 6 p.m. If you can't see him in person, follow him on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or his website, victorsamalot.com, to keep up with him. Well, let's have another listen to Dance Champa by Victor Samalot, and we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.
a news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.